Two verses chosen for today from the New Testament book of 1 Peter. I'm going to read these verses to you in two different translations. First, the translation from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible that is in your pew, and then a translation from the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a modern Roman Catholic translation of the Bible that adds a nuance to this, uh, these verses that I think is worth hearing. This context of this passage is from the author of 1 Peter writing to this young church as it experiences pressure from the outside, resistance, even persecution from the community around. And he, the, the author, is giving these new believers encouragement in how to talk of their faith. Now, I don't expect you to be giving pressure or persecution toward these speakers today, but, um, but instead an encouraging listening. But I do think the word here to these young believers is apt for all of us at any time as we think about having a reason for our hope and being able to offer that gently but in good conscience to others around us. So here are these words from 1 Peter. But in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And from the New Jerusalem Bible translation, simply proclaim the Lord Christ holy in your hearts and always have your answer ready for people who ask you the reason for the hope that you have. But give it with courtesy and respect and with a clear conscience. The word of the Lord. Now. Good morning. I want to thank Wes for inviting me to join this annual tradition, especially as it is his last, first Sunday of the new year. I want to begin with a verse from Micah, chapter 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. I trust God, and because of this trust, I have hope. Not the I'm hoping it won't rain tomorrow or the I hope I'm not late for this appointment, but the big kind of hope with a capital H. I didn't always have that kind of trust in God, but he worked on me for a long time and he never gave up. He waited and he watched and he heard me. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church attended regularly, even went to every youth choir, VBS, Sunday school activity that was offered. I believed, but I didn't have a personal relationship with God until much later on. I had a serious accident in the third grade, which kept me in the hospital, in bed, or on crutches a lot. I did learn patience through that experience, And that has helped me to be patient with God and also with myself as I worked on our relationship. There's a quote from Tertullian that says, hope 
is patience with the lamp lit. I don't know for sure, and maybe we should ask Michael, which word is most often used in the Bible? I'd guess love, maybe God, but I didn't look it up. I looked up hope instead and found out that depending on the translation you read, the word hope turns up 130 to 175 times in the Bible. That should lead us to pay attention and watch for hope in our lives. Some version of hope has always been in my life. From an early age, I was always a class half full kind of girl, optimistic and happy. But hope, the kind we're talking about today, came later in life. It, it arrived when I realized the connection between trusting God and living in a hopeful way. Divorce and the early death of my dad from a heart attack left me in a place of despair and fear. It was a place I wasn't used to, and somehow God used that. I found that turning to God helped, and the more I turned to him, the stronger our relationship became. It took some time, lots of prayers, and equally lots of letting go to realize I could trust God to be there and in that way provide the hope I needed. Hope for the next step, hope for tomorrow and the day after that, and hope to erase the worry of being a single mom. And finally, hope that life and God really did have a plan, and I just needed to be patient. In Jeremiah 29, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Wes asked us to talk about how hope has influenced our lives this year. Well, this was a momentous year for Jim and I as we made it to our seventh and final continent, Antarctica. It's a vast and beautiful place, but it can be challenging. The weather, the seas, the animals, the wind, the ice, all influence how the day goes. Our expedition team leader, Iggy, told us early on that every day is plan A in the beginning of the day, and no matter what happens at the end of the day, it's still plan A. I carried that with me each day through disappointments and changes in plans. Looking back, I think we can use that same principle in our daily lives. It's all plan A. We can trust that God is in charge. We can let go of worry and rest in hope. If we don't see penguins today, we will be given another opportunity and a far better option tomorrow. God's love and reassurance never wavers. We're the ones who lose our way or forget in this moment that he is always there and his is always planning. The other major thing we've tackled this year is our next steps in planning for the final stages of life. We're currently healthy and in a good place, but it's still a necessary step. It's been a challenging time of looking at finances and retirement living options. We are doing it for our kids so they don't have to worry about us or take on the responsibility of those decisions. In the process, we have been leaning into hope, hope that our health will continue to be good 
hope that the things we'd still like to do will be possible, and that whatever happens, we're looking out for each other's future well-being and providing for our children and future generations. And as always, we plan knowing that God is ultimately in charge and in control. We trust he will look after us and that his plans are infinitely better than any we can make. I'll leave you with a final passage from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wasn't that wonderful? That's the second go around and it got better. I don't know how that happened. Good morning. It's nice to see you. <clears throat> I received a text message from a friend living in Tel Aviv, Israel, shortly after the Hamas attacks this past October. She had written to let me know that she and her family were safe and doing as well as could be expected. She also wanted me to know that she was giving away the stuffed animal we had brought her daughter when we had visited in July. Evidently, a friend had lost a sister in the attack and was now gathering resources for the sister's twin babies who had managed to survive. She asked me to tell our daughters how special the gift was and that she would always remember our family's kindness. But given the desperate need of this family, she felt it was important to provide a special form of generosity and hoped everyone would understand. The fact that the twins survived the Hamas attacks was a miracle. When it became obvious that the end game of the attack was abduction or violence, the twins' parents rushed their sons to a bomb shelter and locked them inside. Once secure, they attempted to fight off their attackers, attackers but lost their lives in the process. The Israeli army found the twins 14 hours later safe and unharmed. The story of their survival was reported all over the world. Since receiving my friend's message, I have thought a lot about what these parents must have been thinking and feeling in the moment, thinking and feeling in the moments just before their deaths. I understand the impulse to protect one's children even at the expense of one's own life, but I have struggled to comprehend the hope that motivated their actions. If the threat of violence was as present as the reports indicate, these parents must have known that they would not have seen their sons again. History tells us that parents who faced a similar type of threat killed their children before the attackers could harm them, but these parents chose to lock their babies unaccompanied in a bomb shelter, hoping that someone other than Hamas terrorists would find them in time and raise them with care. I find my inability to comprehend, them hope, that comprehend their hope indicative of a troubling condition. On reflection, I believe that I struggle with this type of hope because I concentrate my conscious energy on indemnifying myself against risk. I don't want to find myself in need of a moonshot or a Hail Mary. I'd rather read, write, prepare, study, strategize, organize, coordinate collate, aggregate, me measure, and if necessary, try again. 
Consequently, much of my time is dedicated to the task of controlling variables. A focus on risk management has a cost, of course. My prayers are infrequent and often shallow because I place trust in myself rather than God. I turn to God only when I have lost control, and as you might expect, my relations suffer from this tendency. I grow impatient with those who lack the same conviction to order that drives my life. I often refuse to grant a hearing to perspectives that are different than my own. I have trained my mind to identify the limits in another person's argument and anticipate the steps I need to take in order to guard against them. I express fatigue with, if not disdain for, those who have made risky life decisions and now cannot live without assistance. I am hard on and weary of those who support bullies and braggarts, whose short-term interests threaten long-term peace. I expect that we were asked to speak about hope this morning because hope is the most appropriate feeling for the start of a new year. Hope seeks with confident anticipation the possibilities of what may come. The desire to realize those possibilities play a key part in their coming to existence. But what I have said this morning doesn't align with such expectations. Instead of projecting forward, I have provided a different type of testimony that looks inward. To that end, at the start of this new year, I hope that I learn how to trust God's plan for my life. I hope to find joy in relinquishing control over variables and outcomes, and I hope that I exhibit the perseverance to seek what I cannot see and accept with patience what I struggle to understand. I don't know if I will be successful. I doubt my ability to measure success even if it does arrive, and I'm worried that pride will throw me off course. But this is a start. May those who see themselves in my testimony find hope at its true source. When Dr. Abram first asked me to give this testimony, one of the areas he asked me to highlight was my experience studying religion as it's one of my majors at USD. Any of my friends can tell you that I ramble on about religious topics for hours on end, but I'll save you from one of those. I've been aware of my interest in theology and religious studies since sophomore year when I founded the club that Wes talked about earlier. Every person that I tell my complicated major to usually follows up with the same form of questions. They're accepting of economics, a little less of political science, but everyone always focuses in on why I'm studying religion. Depending on who asks, my answer varies. To those who question it based on the assumption that I won't get a job or won't make any money, I tell them that studying religion provides me with immense knowledge of culture, beliefs, upbringings, family dynamics, international relations, and so many more aspects that are prevalent in the money-making world. I have a hard time believing that any politician, Wall Street powerhouse, business owner, or any other powerful decision maker is not influenced by religion in one way or another. If they seem a little bit more sympathetic to the sensitivity of a topic like religion, I might read them the following email that a Jewish student at my Catholic high school sent me after we read a prayer for Yom Kippur during our morning prayer. He said, it was so powerful and meaningful to hear those words and know that I am recognized here. And finally, if the person asking the question about why I'm studying religion is a, is a professor, a pastor, or anyone who has a vested interest in the, in the intellectual advancement of my generation, I might say this, I want to learn what I'm waiting for, 
and what every Catholic, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, Jain, Sikh, agnostic, atheist, and Presbyterian is waiting for. What is the meaning of life is there, if there is no hope for something to come? That leads me to another question that I was asked a few months back that stuck with me. One of my friends at USD said this, why are you asking questions that have no answers? I didn't have an answer to that either. <laughs> that question spirals around my mind each and every day. I could be studying finance, where I can ask why artificial intelligence stocks are on the up and up and get a solid answer. I could be studying biology, where I can ask how many different types of ecosystems there are. Google said that there were eight. Or I could be studying history, where I could ask what Napoleon did in 1815 and be told of his monumental battle leadership. But unfortunately, these are the questions that I chose. Why do so many people believe in an unseen God? What is love? How do I know that God is real? What happens when we die? If you were hoping that my being in college for a year and a half gave me an answer to any of these, you're sorely mistaken. The amount of existential questions that I asked before studying religion was manageable. But now that I'm in the thick of reading historical theological texts and analyzing the great thinkers such as Aquinas, Confucius, Lao Tzu, and Al-Ghazali, and many others, I have way more questions that keep me up at night. Questions that provoke me to Socratically question my friends, family, and professors. Questions that more people in power should be asking. Questions whose mere existence as a question can do more than offering a trite and easy answer. Here's a piece from an article titled, God is a Question, Not an Answer, by a philosopher named William Irwin. Rather than seeking the security of an answer, perhaps we should collectively celebrate the uncertainty of the question. That is not to say that we should cease attempts to convince others of our views, far from it. We should try to unsettle others as we remain open to being unsettled ourselves. In a spirit of tolerance and intellectual humility, we should see ourselves as a partner in a continuing conversation addressing an enduring question. So sure, maybe studying religion won't tell me what happens when we die or what the face of God looks like. I'm not sure if I want to know. But I'm sure of this. Not studying religion means a lack of appreciation for culture, a lack of hope, an ignorance around international affairs, an inability to tackle these hard, meaningful questions that have faced human existence since the beginning of time. Religion has been with all of us longer than the beginning of any of our family lines. I think that I owe it the respect of asking the questions that each tradition has posed to us for thousands of years. But the one thing I have learned is this, the answer to a question is rarely as satisfying as the search. <laughs>